This episode is brought to you by Dundee Venture Capital. With an amazing portfolio and incredible value to the entrepreneur, Dundee is a perfect choice if you're looking to raise capital or become an LP. If you're connected to a startup with huge potential, you'll definitely want to talk to Dundee Venture Capital. This week, we're talking about how to structure a company from the earliest employees to high growth. We break down everything from titles to management. We also caught up with past partner at Vegas Tech Fund and startup community builder Andy White. He discusses his vast experience, including the downtown project and working with Tony Shea. All this and more on this episode of Inside Outside. Running a startup is hard. Running one outside the valley is even harder. Inside Outside is a podcast for inside access to startups outside the valley. Each week, we'll bring you real insights, raw stories, and tactical advice from founders and startup teams around the country. Let's get started. Hey, everybody, and welcome to this episode of Inside Outside. You're looking to startups outside Silicon Valley. My name is Matt Boyd. I'm Brian Ardinger. And my name is Paul Jarrett. <laughs> How's it going this week? We're doing a kind of a weird setup. We're trying. We're still trying to figure out this whole, uh, you know, remote recording thing. And I think we've got it on lock, but we'll see how this episode turns out. <laughs> you know what's awesome? Skype. It's like the best <laughs> thing ever. <laughs> yeah, we've tried to use Skype several times, and it's just uh, it doesn't quite work for what we need it to. So we're but, so we're all re- we're all on the phone right now but we're recording via QuickTime on our laptops. I love it. I love it. <laughs> yeah. It's pretty sweet. And my it's microphone little, is on so, top of a Kleenex box. <laughs> <laughs> my, so my microphone is inside of my shoe. I'm not even kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm going to uh, uh, take a photo of this and post it because it looks awesome. But hey, hey. MVP, hey, it works. MVP, baby, MVP. Yeah, right, exactly. All right, so let's did you get guys? So, uh, I have to ask you guys real quick. Did you get a chance to watch the Amazon drone video that I sent you? Did you guys watch that? Yeah, I that did. Was insane. Uh, yes, I'm. I'm ordering all my gifts. I'm ordering all my gifts tomorrow with it. You put a land. <laughs> you put. You put a landing pad down for a drone to land in your yard. That is crazy. Yeah. How long do you th- how, how how long do you think until something like that is actually allowed? Allowed five years. Yeah. Wouldn't that be awesome if like what? Nebraska or Lincoln or Omaha was the first place in the world to allow that? They're just like yeah, like we just get it passed. I I have no idea how that, is, that works. Wouldn't that be crazy awesome? That would be precedent setting for sure. Yeah, I definitely think so. Make it a That'd drone be- zone. There you go. If anybody in government is listening, you should <laughs> oh, do that. Oh, man. That would be so cool. Somebody's going to post like, here, here's how you do it. It's easy, guys. And then they'll like post a link on a million things to do to make <laughs> it happen. So Perfect. Yeah. yeah. So this week we are talking about, uh, you know, company structure, you know, how to, how to set up your company from, you know, both the early stage and on through to the growth stage and that kind of thing, you know, it, you know, as far as like titles, there's so many things to consider. Um, let's just get started on that. What do you guys think about company structure and how do you, um, how do you think about forming, you know, especially Paul, I want to hear your thoughts on that, you know, how, forming your own company. Yeah. Well, I think in the beginning there's, there's, I think there's all sorts of resources out there and, you know, I think we were probably guilty of getting a little bit too caught up in titles and, 
you know, who does what right, and right. whatever. But, but I also think that makes people feel a little bit secure, right? Like they have a business card and a title. So, you know, for good reason, I think it's, it's, you know, the, the right thing to do, but you just can't get too caught up in it. Um, I also think, especially when you're starting off in your first couple of years, it's an evolution and you need to make sure and clarify that to the team, right? That, that what you're doing now and, and what anybody is doing is likely going to change. And, you know, there's, there's some real pros and cons to it, but you know, some of the pros are, are, you know, people feel like they're in the right spot, they're doing the right things and, and, you know, feel safe and secure and, and, and the right way. And a lot of, you know, some of the cons are you might get caught up with tunnel vision doing one thing. It might be hard for you to, you know, adjust and, and be a little bit more fluid in different roles. Um, but I think it's good to get something I mean, down on paper to at least start. Right. I think there's also yeah. a difference between like external titles and internal titles. You know, you can have a lot of different external titles that make sense right. for your, for your industry, you know, so you, you, maybe you need a VP of sales as long as the person coming in as a VP of sales realizes they're also the salesperson and right. they're probably also the, right. the marketing person or the, you know, there's probably multiple different hats. And so, you know, titles internally of how you actually organize the company and how work gets done may be different than externally how you present it. Right. See, I think there, for, for, for titles, I think, that, you know, there's really two options. I mean, and it's kind of obvious you could either go with titles or without titles. But I think um, from my standpoint, what I've seen work is avoiding titles as long as you possibly can until it, it, it starts inhibiting your daily workflow right. until you really stop, you stop understanding who's taking kind of taking care of what in a generalized thing. Right. Um, I do think, I do think titles have the, the benefit of kind of giving people um, bolstering their confidence a little bit in the work that they're doing and giving them kind of expertise over a specific yep. thing, but they yep. also have a, a potential negative, you know, downside of being uh, limiting people's scope and making right. them feel like right. they can't expand outside of that. Um, I was actually looking around on Quora and one guy, one guy said, you know, um, his, Colin is his name. He said on, on the topic of uh, titles and startups, he said, still don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Titles are necessary to help you recruit people for a lot less money when you have no money. And this was actually the top answer. Mm -hmm. When you have no money, you can get a lot more employee from a title in a dream than you can with just a dream. And titles will help show potential financiers that you're organized in a, in a corporate structure and that you're prepared to make the leap from a uh, two-man band founder who, uh, who play in parallel to a machine with specialists and experts as each gear. So that was a, kind of an interesting quote. That's, pretty, that's that a pretty good, uh, there's a reason why that's probably upvoted to the top. I think that he kind of hit it on the head. I think a lot of it, yeah. a lot of that, I agree with what, what that uh, kind of the emphasis of that particular post, but um, I think a lot of it has to do also just with career progression. Like again, whether you have a title uh, or whatever, so that you know where that person's supposed to go um, and, and you have a vision for where that employee sh uh, should go. I think that goes a long way again, regardless of how you fit the titles in, but knowing that, you know, you start here, here's where you would move up. Here's the next step uh, and giving something for people to shoot for, um, right. I think is, is important as you scale that company out. Yeah. I think it's, when you guys, I was going to say, I, ahead, I think sorry. it's important to understand too, like if that matters to people, certain people it matters to and certain people it doesn't. I think it's, you know, it's all about uh, going to sound cheesy, but like, it's all about communication. Right. And 
and understanding if that matters to that person and what they're headed for. Some people don't really care. And, and, you know, I, I, I always think about a, you know, we've never given anybody the title title of, you know, VP of sales or salesperson um, for, for good yeah. reason. Cause you know, I know that whenever, whenever I see the word salesman or, or business development or whatever, it's kind of almost, almost always a immediate delete in the email. Um, and sometimes that matters to people and sometimes that doesn't. So I think it's all about communicating with that person and understanding, you know, what works for both sides. And well, and that kind of goes to my, no, go ahead. Sorry. I was going to say also the industry, there are certain industries, B2B industries specifically that, you know, again, they expect to talk to people with particular titles. You know, there's almost a quid right. pro quo. Yep. Um, so again, knowing what the norm is within the industry that you're uh, working in has a big effect of how you kind of structure your organization too. Yep. Yep. That kind of goes into my next question. Uh, so when do you start using kind of executive style titles like VP, um, that kind of thing? Like, I mean, obviously, you know, probably even from the early stage, you'll have a CEO and you'll have a CMO, but what about like the, the a, a level down the VP of something like what, at what stage in the, in a startup's growth path, do you need to start having them? And I think I have an answer, which would probably be around 40. I've always heard that, yeah. you know, at, at about yeah. 40 or, mm-hmm. or maybe, maybe even slightly less, but uh, 40, you, your, your culture starts changing to more of a co- corporate nature and that kind of yep. thing. What do you guys think about that? I think That's it probably is. Right. Yeah. I think part of it has to do like, again, just how many people can you actually manage? So if you're a CEO and you have 40 employees, there's no way everybody can report to you individually. I mean, you have to have some right. type of hierarchy. I mean, whether you have it, written down as an org chart or not, there's going to be some type of, um, you know, structure to that because you can't possibly manage 40 people's uh, daily, daily lives and get your stuff done as well. So I think, you know, hierarchy comes into play when you're starting to figure out um, kind of how many people uh, are doing particular types of tasks, how much specialization has to come into it and how fast are you growing. There's something that kind of interesting happens being um, at a company before that that's got to uh, actually two companies before that have grown to 40 employees. And there is something about that number. It's uh, for me, you know, it's kind of there's there's the numbers of, you know, uh, seven, you know, basically 10 employees. And then there's kind of that dozen and 14 employees and then 40. So there's kind of always Mm -hmm. it like seems like certain stages. certain things change. Um, I, I think it's really important to minimize how many people I actually, we we've clarified at blue box where there are, there's somebody that you report to, but there's also somebody that manages you. And we actually have those as two different things. Um, so we have reporting to and, and managing, um, by managed by. So, um, those are two actually totally different things. And we shift managers all the time. Um, but people that you report to typically stay the same. And I think that's helped a lot. Um, every other company I've been to kind of your manager is also who you report to, um, for your job. And I like the way that we've kind of flipped that on its, I'm sure we're not the first people to do it, but well, how does that work? How do you, how do you, yeah. How do you define, you know, manager and reporting to? Yeah. So the person that you um, report to or your director is the person that you kind of stick specifically to um, work items about. So um, it's kind of about, um, you know, uh, things specific to the job, to the task. Um, the person that manages you, that's more about you know, when you have time off um, and we always say that the manager's role, job is to ensure that 
the company is doing the most they can to make that employee happy where they work. So, yeah. So when you're being directed by, or when you report to somebody for directing, it's more about specific tasks to the job. Whereas when you manage somebody, it's more about that manager ensuring that um, the company is doing the most that it can to make a good environment for that employee. So that's like time off. Um, you know, when people have questions, kind of life stuff comes up, that's who managers are. And we make it also, so it's more of a conversation between the manager and the person being managed. So we have biweekly one-on-ones and we shift managers every couple months. So, you know, there's, there's an intern that could be managed by me, for instance. Um, that's not, um, um, too out of the ordinary. Is the reporting more um, based on the project or the, or the task? So, an employee may report to different people depending on the tasks that they're doing. Yeah. So like a developer would always report to, um, you know, another develop, like a a tech person, right? So like a a developer would report to the CTO, but when it comes to managing, they could report to me as a manager for that person. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. I I can't, I can't remember where we got that model from. Um, it wasn't a book. It was um, either my co-founder Stephanie or myself had experienced that before. I think maybe she did that at a company called the Irvin and Smith in Omaha and she brought it over. So um, hmm. I've, I've really liked it because it really helps people um, um, kind of understand different personality and personality types with managers. I think that's really powerful. And I've been, in, I've been in similar kind of matrix based um, org structures where again, you have a particular manager and then you have a, uh, one that kind of cr- cuts across horizontal disciplines. Um, so it, it depends on what you're doing and how you're doing it. Interesting right. format. What do you, what, what do you just kind of shift gears a little bit? What do you guys think about, um, outside of the founding team, we've talked a lot about, you know, the, the different roles of each founder, but let's say you've got 10 employees and, and you're wanting to kind of structure or, or you have the funds to be able to hire you know, five to 10 employees, um, or team members. What, what, what do you think that the ideal kind of, um, roles you should be looking for are? And, and I'll give you an example. So somebody named Shervin, um, said this in Cora. First of all, if you don't know me, like, uh, you'll know that Cora is, um, kind of my go-to resource for, for tons of different amazing content right. around, the topic of business and startups. Right. So Shervin and, and, and Cora said if he had to do it all over again, he would go with simple functional roles and the roles that he kind of outlined is designer, um, hustler, which is a biz dev, developer slash hacker slash programmer is the third one. Fourth one is operation operations manager. Uh, fifth one is support representative or customer service representative. And then the sixth one is a sales person. What do you guys think about those roles that Shervin outlined or your own specific roles within your company? What do you think about that? I think when you're, you know, the zero to five, less than 10 employee kind of space, um, again, I don't think it really much matters as long as everyone knows that the role isn't the only thing that they do. Um, I think a lot of times, as soon as you start introducing titles and that specification and that that specialization around it, um, you often run into issues like, well, that's not my job anymore. Where, uh, you know, at at an early stage when you're five employees, 10 employees, um, that typically can't be the case. I mean, you still have to wear multiple hats. You still have to dive into areas um, that that aren't on your title. Um, And so I think that's important to keep in place. Once you get into the, you know, the 20 plus or whatever, and again, just so that, you know, any one manager can't handle 
typically 20 to, to 30 to 40 employees reporting directly to that person. So that's when you have to kind of divide it up and, and figure out you know, who's the person in charge, uh, either domain expertise or otherwise, that would be more likely to uh, you know, hire that next employee in that particular division um, or, or have enough expertise to be able to manage those folks uh, differently than the, than the CEO directly. I really like the idea. Uh, I, I think that person is right for that many, you know, that many positions. I personally really like the kind of breaking it up into departments. Um, I'm also a big fan of a book called tribal leadership. Um, it's the, uh, the, the Zappos book. We've talked about it a few times here. You can download it for free on Zapp, Zappos. Um, and the, the kind of the nasty side to kind of breaking up into departments like operations, marketing, um, tech, finance, et cetera, is that a lot of times people will kind of get into their own tribe in their own department. Um, but I think as long, you know, one of the first things that we do when we at Bulu Box is we have people download, well, we want them to read the book, but at the very least download and listen to the book. Um, and I think as long as you're always working towards um, breaking down those walls between those departments, that's like the important thing. Um, I have noticed whether it's at Bulu Box or other places that I've worked. One interesting thing is that when you there's kind of, you know, there's uh, there's everywhere in between. But if you were to flip it into kind of like two sides, I have noticed whether it's at Bulu Box or whether it's anywhere else that I've, I've worked um, when you start to kind of break it down. There's kind of two, two big trains of thought. Um, and I think there's everything in between, but I have noticed that when you define titles, you define roles, you define goals and you get very specific, people tend to do that exact thing. And there isn't right. a lot of kind of like creative, yeah, exactly. um, integration or whatever. So that's great. Like if you've figured out the model, you know, and you figured out exactly what you should be doing, that's great. But the sacrifice there is that people don't really work outside of their parameters on the flip side. Right. Right. You know, when it, when it's kind of a, a general concept and it's a, Hey, get this done. I don't care how you do it kind of mentality. And I don't care what your title is. I don't care what your role is. Just get this damn thing done. Um, the great thing about that is people are really creative, but also I think there's a lot of time lost and there's a lot of kind of frustration and, and, you know, that's kind of more of the entrepreneurial side. So I think, if you can strike a balance somewhere in between there, that's the important thing. And, and I've noticed that as our company grows, we're constantly kind of shifting and bouncing between those two mindsets. Right. Um, right. And, and, yeah. and I think that's important that you understand that, that I, I don't think there's ever a simple answer for that. I think it's just this constant kind of fluid motion of pushing it one way or the other. I was going to say, Paul, you brought up uh, Tony uh, Shea and, and Zappos, and I don't know if you've read, but they've recently moved to a kind of a, a non-hierarchy um, concept called holacracy. It's H-O-L-A-C-R-A-C-Y. Yeah, they yeah so they basically cool. it's it's self-forming groups um, yeah. with with no real org chart. So um, and I think you can look up um, that holacracy.org for like how that works. I still, <laughs> I, I would have to figure out dig in a lot more to see how that would actually work in, in a larger organization. But yeah, uh, it's something, you know, there's definitely people that are pushing the edges of this hierarchy fo well, format. I think a lot of times um, in my, in my own kind of personal experience regarding you know, <coughs> titles or lack thereof, I, I, again, I will say that I personally fall on the side of for as long as you possibly can pull it off, no titles. But I, I, I will say with a caveat that is, 
if you don't have titles, it's really, really easy to get into the mentality that uh, we're just going to stay a small company right. that's not really going to grow. <laughs> right. Realistically, a lot of companies that fall into that where the, where they say, you know, we're we're just going to avoid titles for as long as we possibly can. They they just have this in their mind where you know they're they're going to be a small company forever. Yeah. So I I would always say, you know, avoid titles, but make sure that you have the mentality that we're going to grow out of this in a very short amount of time. Mm-hmm. Yep. I think as long as people are, you know, you strike, strike that balance between what you want to do and, and kind of look at your culture and, and look at, you know, your structure and, and all of those things and look at it almost as like a product and talk to your investors, talk to your mentors, talk to your, your advisors, talk to the people you know, I hate using the word employees, but talk to your team members every day and and find out, you know, what's working with them. And it's not going to work for everybody, but you can kind of get a general consensus. And we kind of do a, every six months to eight months, we kind of do an audit and just, you know, listen to everybody and what they're saying and kind of, you know, redefine and redevelop things. So it kind of fits for everybody else. But I do think we're at a point um, in just, you know, business in, in general in 2015, where it's just not going to be done the same way that it's always been done, you know, with, with titles and structure and whatever. And, and I do think that, you know, it's changing and and it's that whole evolve or die kind of scenario. So. Totally agree. So uh, to wrap this conversation up, uh, what's one, what's one piece of advice whenever somebody is structuring, you know, either an early stage company or a later stage company uh, they're trying to get, an idea of structure. I'll go first. I think, um, um, I said, I'll go first. And then I totally lost what I was going to say. (laughs) Hold on, wait, come back. Oh no. I I was going to say, I think it's really important to communicate to people that things are going to change. Um, you know, don't bring on somebody and say, here's your role. Here's your title, you know, whatever, like preface that and make sure they have an understanding of, you know, it's a startup or it's a business and evolution happens and just be prepared um, and just always communicate with that person kind of um, um, how things are likely going to go and, and make sure and keep those lines open. And I guess I would add, uh, you know, again, following up on what I said before, but, you know, knowing the difference between kind of internal and external titles uh, and, and internal and external roles and knowing that, you know, titles are important uh, for some particular industries, it's important to have them, but know that those particular titles are, are just a, um, they're, they're a way to think about things, but they're not the only way to actually do things. Yeah. And, and I think whenever it comes down to titles or no titles or, or whatever it is, um, just hire really great people. So regardless of whether you, you know, have a title or don't have a title, if you hire really great people, they're going to dig in and find their way into the deepest depths of the company and see where they can add value. People are uh, by far your greatest asset. And when in doubt, Go to Quora. I think it is important to have that bold vision to be working towards that, uh, to also differentiate from from what else is going on other places. This is Andy White, early partner of Vegas Tech Fund and one of the key pillars in the Las Vegas startup ecosystem, along with Tony Shea. So let's get started. So Andy White, thank you for coming on uh, Inside Outside uh, with us today. Um, as you, as you probably know, we talk a lot about uh, the communities and what's it like to build a startup outside the Valley. And you've got a lot of experience uh, with that, not only from the early days when you were with Boom Startup out of Salt Lake City, but then you moved on to uh, 
kind of create, along with Tony Shea, you know, a lot of the things that was going on with the, the Vegas project, the downtown project. So we want to talk a little bit about um, this whirlwind the last couple of years of kind of starting from scratch to build a startup city uh, in Vegas. And what's that been like? What's the you know, that front row seat been like? Uh, it's been uh, a crazy journey to be on, that's for sure. Uh, if you had asked me five years ago, can you ever imagine uh, having done what I've just been through, I, I never would have been able to uh, connect those dots. Uh, but the, uh, I think the, the most important part of that is these things are happening everywhere. Uh, any community that is growing is creating new business, and those new businesses uh, many times are being created around a technology of some sort. It's, it's just to the point where it's driving everything that we're doing. Uh, and so to be in an environment that embraces that and, and understands the importance of it was uh, you know, an amazing opportunity. Uh, I think those communities that figure this out first have an opportunity to uh, really leapfrog similar sized communities, um, but everyone will, will eventually get there. It's just a matter of time. So you guys were kind of on the forefront of some of this thinking uh, about what it takes to build a community and specifically around tech startups and that. How did that get started? How did you get connected with Tony? And then how did um, that genesis of that idea kind of come to play? Yeah. Uh, so I was one of the uh, first pure community driven uh, members uh, of the team. Uh, it had started off with a, a small core that was um, primarily coming out of Zappos. Uh, the focus of the project initially was to help accelerate the revitalization of downtown so that there would be a good complementary set of services for the new Zappos campus coming there. Uh, while I was in Salt Lake, I had also attended many different uh, tech events over in Las Vegas. Uh, I got to know many of the teams that were already there and just tried to help out wherever I could, whether that was going over a business model canvas or going to a pitch practice and giving feedback on that, just really getting engaged with the community. And so when the opportunity came up for the tech st uh, fund to start, then uh, my name came up as uh, a possibility and uh, one, just one thing left to another. So you started the the Vegas Tech Fund, and and it's a venture tech or venture uh, capital fund that invested in, I, I believe, a variety of things, not just your traditional kind of software tech, um, but you had a bigger mission um, with the community as well. So you can talk a little bit how that differs in a traditional VC fund. Sure, the Tech Fund was a part of the downtown project. Uh, so for that, uh, the downtown project was a privately held company that was focused on accelerating the. Um, revitalization of the area. And as a part of that, uh, the tech fund had $50 million set aside to focus on early stage tech companies. The goal of that were to find companies that were either already located in the area or to uh, bring companies to the area that could have positive effects on the community. Now, that didn't mean it had to be specifically um, a social good type company. It could just mean that uh, they were, you know, shared the values of uh, give before you get and that if we all work together, then we'll, we'll all be better off. Uh, come in, build a great company, uh, hire some employees that will also be engaged in the community and just grow that uh, base. 
Did you have a different look then as far as like the types of companies that you looked at or, or how did that differ? Like if you were investing in a more of the community driven social impact type of play versus a pure return type of focus. Right. Yeah. It, it, neither one of those was uh, specifically the focus. Uh, it was more about the team and uh, the culture that they had established for their company. Uh, these were all very early stage teams. Uh, and so the primary uh, decision-making criteria that you had were the founders themselves. Uh, part of that, of course, was their ability to execute. So you had a product out there. They had a, a customer in a marketplace, uh, but still a, a lot more work to be done on that. And, and we understand that those things will change. Uh, but what, what won't change is uh, those founders' beliefs and the way that they uh, implement that within their company. Uh, that will certainly evolve over time, but having a strong core there is is really important. So you spent a couple of years uh, investing in companies and helping building out the, the downtown project. What did you learn? Um, and what are some of the things that you would that uh, you took away from that whirlwind? Yeah, uh, a, a small group of people can have uh, create very positive change in a small, uh, short amount of time. Uh, that's that's probably the thing I, I learned the most. Uh, there were. Uh, still a, a, a tremendous number of amazing things that are happening in downtown Las Vegas. And just five years ago, uh, it would have been very difficult to imagine any of those even being possible, let alone being completed and, and functioning within the community. Um, this carried over into education and healthcare and tech startups and restaurants and bars and um, it just you know, the, the entire uh ecosystem that a community is made up of. And it just happens one step at a time. Uh, you don't have to start off with the grand mission to make it happen, although it is very important to understand where you want to go. But each one of those building blocks adds to each other. So it can be just uh, a few people in a room that add a few more each week. And before you know it, you, you've got a pretty good crowd to put some effort behind something. So it, it seemed like you have a you had a pretty good vision in that, uh, or you know a big bold vision. You know, obviously when you take on big bold visions, it's uh, sometimes it's difficult to achieve that. So kind of what what were some of the things that you learned as you were building out that playbook uh, and building out a city? Yeah, I, I think it is important to have that bold vision to be working towards that uh, to also differentiate from from what else is going on other places, and then it also helps others define. Uh, where they can help and participate and, and where the things that they can just go off and do on their own. Uh, there always seems to be this tendency to prevent uh, moving forward because we don't want to step on anyone's toes. And ultimately, it's those who are able to execute that, uh, you know, make these things happen. And if we can't find an area of the community that needs effort that someone else isn't already focused on, then, you know, that's, that's probably a, a bigger problem than, than actually what we're trying to do. And, and so it just, you, you got to get in there and, and start doing things. Uh, it's, it's not going to be perfect. You're going to have to be iterative. You want to learn as you go, uh, but keep moving forward with it and, and continue to believe. And if it's, if it's, going to work out uh, and you can find others that share that belief, then 
uh, you know, keep moving it forward. So, so let's change gears a little bit. So now you've, you've moved on. You're, you're now in a new city and a new community uh, of San Diego, and you've got a new project, City as a Startup. Can you talk a little bit more about that and what the process been to kind of uh, identifying and moving to a new ecosystem? Sure. So the City as a Startup uh, is uh, kind of my attempt to codify uh, a bit of what we had done in Las Vegas uh, and then also some of the work that I've done uh, in other communities, um, several visits out to Kansas City and San Antonio, and now more recently uh, Chattanooga, uh, and looking at the commonalities in these communities that are really starting to pick up momentum and and make a difference. And ultimately, uh, that all comes down to the individuals that are making that happen. But those individuals are typically tied to. Uh, one of the main pillars within the community. And so the, the city of the startup starts by looking at those, um, helping uh, community members identify their primary pillars and evaluate where they're at, and then look to the individuals within those to help either uh, grow the, the pillars where they're strongest or to help support those where um, they could use uh, a little more work. And the pillars are, I believe, you know, you have them kind of categorized in like learner, doer, connector. And that can you talk a little bit more about that. Yeah, for the for the cities of startup concepts, um, looking at the individuals, we break them down into three different categories: uh, the, the learner, the doer, and the connector. Uh, and the idea there is uh, we're all really good at something, uh, and each of those things tend to come together in a way that uh, can create a, a better whole. So yeah, it, it's good to understand what you're the best at so that then you can complement yourself with others. And then ultimately, each of those three um, abilities, when they all come together in, in one person, then that's where you find yourself being an entrepreneur. And it doesn't mean you have to be the best at all three of those, but you do have to have aspects of those where you can remain iterative and, and learn from what you're doing and understand that these are all tests that we're running. Uh, you have to be able to uh, connect to others and bring others together within what you're doing. Um, and then ultimately execute on that design and make things happen. So is your thought that uh, like someone like Brad Fell talks about that entrepreneurial communities are, have to be led by entrepreneurs. Is your thought that um, some of these entrepreneurs can be created or, or, they have to be present in this in the system for it to actually take hold in the first place. I think entrepreneurship is uh, is a, a mental thing. Um, it's it's looking at new ways of doing things, trying to make the world a, a better place. And so that type of individual could be hidden away inside some very large institution. Uh, it could be someone who has been doing this for years and, and has had some, some great success and now has some time to give back. Or it could be that recent high school or college graduate who's decided that um, they don't want to continue on the traditional path and kind of strike off on their own. So I don't, I don't think it's uh, necessarily the definition of a startup founder. That's, that's not what he's trying to say. It's that it's the individuals that are thinking about these things differently and uh, not just uh, keeping with the, the status quo. Mm -hmm. 
So you've, you've had a chance to obviously um, been involved in, in startup communities. You've, you've both lived and worked and seen other startup communities. What are you, some of the things that you're seeing that other communities are doing well or, or things, other learnings that you've seen over the last couple of years? The, I think the communities that are doing really well are the ones that are finding ways to accelerate the resources that they already have and put those to use within their community. Uh, and then really redefining what that community is, is going to be um, in the next two decades. Uh, and I think a great example of that is uh, Kansas City. Uh, they were one of the first, uh, or they were the first, uh, Google Fiber communities, which mm-hmm. kind of helped redefine them for where things are going. Uh, and now they've really uh, set out to champion the um, efforts of uh, the Internet of Everything, basically, within their city. And uh, they're setting up some really great infrastructure around that concept, uh, helping entrepreneurs come in and take advantage of that infrastructure that they do have and tying the uh, historic uh, assets and resources that the community has back into this uh, new concept and, and really bringing the entire community with them to do that. It's interesting you mentioned that because you know, San Diego is a, another interesting startup community where it's kind of had a history of, of startups, but in a different sector, you know, in, in the healthcare sector or the uh, biotech and that. So what are, what are the things that you've found that are different in a kind of a, an older uh, startup community than one that you kind of created from, from scratch from like a Vegas perspective. Yeah. So everything runs in cycles. Uh, I think the most important thing to keep in mind these days is that those cycles are getting faster and faster. So when we look at where are we going in the next 20 years, the goal can't be to recreate the auto industry. That's going to stick around for a hundred years. We probably don't have those opportunities anymore. Uh, however, you can create an industry that will continue to evolve and adapt. And I think that's one where San Diego does have a couple of really great um, foundational players in that. Uh, and when you look at the biotech and life sciences, uh, it's starting to connect into every aspect of our lives. It's not just talking about medical care. Um, there's a great example around here where we have a, um, a burgeoning um, microbrewery uh, community in San Diego. And one of the um, assets, local assets that they were able to take advantage of here was actually through life sciences and the research that has been done on bacteria and how that would um, affect the um, brewing process. And it was amazing to hear all of the tie-ins that that's had from a, a scientific experiment, things being done in a Petri dish that would then change the taste of, of the beer as, as uh, it goes to the consumer. And it's those uh, areas where you can take the resources that have been used in one industry for per- perhaps many years and then apply those to a new industry where we have some of the greatest opportunities for innovation. Very cool. So uh, I'll switch gears again, moving away from kind of the community side, putting back on your, your VC hat. Um, you know, we've got a lot, a lot of founders that listen to our podcast and that. What are some of the, either the trends that you're seeing in, in, in involving in the investment community over the past couple, couple of months? And what are some of the opportunities that you see out there for entrepreneurs? 
So the biggest challenge I see for entrepreneurs right now is it's so easy to start a company that they begin with how they think they should start a company. And Hmm. we're all humans and we all like to build things and we can create tools. And so, so many times that's where it starts is I'm going to build this thing. And the challenge with that is you don't even know if that thing is worth building yet. Uh, and so I, I find this, particularly in, in um, early uh, entrepreneurs that are just getting started off, that you know, they are told to do something and you know, just do it. Don't just think about it, which is great. Uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean build something. That can and should mean talk to your customer, analyze the marketplace, understand the size of the problem that you're trying to solve, and then decide for yourself whether it's worth solving or not. And once you have all of that figured out, then you'll have uh, a tremendous amount of insight that will help you understand what is the best tool to build. And that's, that's probably um, you know, the, the greatest single lesson, easy to understand, hard to execute, that uh, I could share with, a, with an entrepreneur. Now, knowing that most of them will not do that, then in, in building your product, uh, you know, the term that we hear all the time is traction. And traction is this, this word that, that gets applied to a great variety of things, which can cause a lot of confusion. Um, but I simply like to look at it as your primary key performance indicator that gets better and better over the shortest amount of time. And I think uh, I, I just sent out a note uh, this week uh, with a retweet from Slack where they're starting, instead of doing um, monthly active users, they're going to start doing uh, nanosecond active users. They have so many on there now. <laughs> they've, they've finally passed, I think it was a million active users at, at, at a time. And that's exactly the case that we're talking about. That the shorter amount of time you can track a, a bigger number that's growing then that, that's significant to, to your business growth, then you have traction. And no, it doesn't necessarily have to be um, revenue. But uh, even when it is revenue, if you're losing a dollar for every customer you sign up, then that's still not significant necessarily to the, the growth of your company. Uh, and then on the other side, just tracking some sort of vanity metric may not be uh, functional enough to get it, gain the interest of someone from the outside because it, it just doesn't have enough meaning for the, the actual growth of the company. And that's an interesting point because nowadays with the tools and technologies you have out there, virtually any startup uh, can sh- either pretend or, or look like they have traction um, before they really do. Um, it, the, the bar seems to have been raised significantly over the last year or two um, because of the tools that are out there to get traction. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, we, we talked early on uh, that you, know, you don't want to beta test your product with your mom or your friends and your family because they'll, they'll all tell you it's great and pat you on the head. Um, that, I think that general concept is now extending to your local community. Uh, there's mm-hmm. enough technology now that people are comfortable with that, sure, the local coffee shop will be happy to put your app in there for a while and see what happens with it. And, and you can put their name on your website and that may get you another couple of coffee shops. but that's really 
uh, you know, the minimum for you to know that there's, there's something there. You continue to have to run tests and make sure that you're really solving the problem and that this is something that you'll be able to replicate somewhere else and then ultimately be able to scale um, much bigger. Uh, and so it's, it, it can be easy to get um, excited uh, about those, those early wins, and, and you should. I mean, those are important, and, and you want to grow off of them. Uh, just make sure that that growth continues. And that's where the, the real focus on the traction is important. Uh, if you find yourself where you only have 12 customers for two months and you were bringing them on one a month for a while, then that, you know, that, that's a sign that that's something's in jeopardy. Well, that's it for this episode. Special thanks to Andy White for joining us this week. Reach out to him on Twitter and let him know how much you enjoyed the interview. If you have a question for us, feel free to reach out on Twitter as well, at the IO Podcast. Also, if you have 30 seconds to spare, we would love for you to leave a review on our iTunes page. And while you're there, feel free to subscribe as well. Until next time, go build something big.